Go ahead and open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. Before uh, we get started looking at our text this morning, perhaps if you looked at your bulletin, you may have noticed we're looking at chapters 2 through 6 this morning. Uh, Brother Gene stopped me in the hallway this morning and uh, encouraged me and asked if I was preaching the entire thing. And my response was, well, yeah, kind of. Uh, We're not going to read the entire thing because, uh, as he rightly pointed out, that would probably take 15 or 20 minutes. And uh, so we're not going to do that uh, this morning. And if you'll notice, uh, or if you've seen or, or talked to one of the elders, we're actually going to, as we're going through this book of Jeremiah, take pretty large chunks. And by large, maybe four, five, six chapters, I believe, at the most. And this is a bit unusual for us. Typically, uh, as we do expository preaching, we'll go through a book, but we'll take kind of more manageable sections, maybe kind of often those breaks that your Bible has, uh, maybe if we're in a narrative, kind of one story unit. Um, we're not going to do that with Jeremiah. And there's, there's a number of reasons for that. One, it's, as Steve pointed out last week, it's the longest book in the Bible. Uh, so this would, if we did that, took maybe 10, even one chapter, that would take us a long time. Also, there's a lot of repetition uh, we see throughout this book, so we'll, we'll kind of see that a little bit this morning, and that'll give us a foretaste, kind of the, rest of the way the rest of the book goes. So there's a lot of repetition. So we're going to take these larger chunks. Now, that means generally that you need to do some homework. I know we don't often do that, but, but may I encourage you to prepare for our Sunday morning worship together, would you read the section that we're going to cover? Carolyn sends out an email that all of us should get. If you don't get the email, talk to her or talk to one of the elders. We'll make sure you get on the email list. But she sends out the bulletin, the electronic bulletin ahead of time. That way you can come prepared for what we're going to be looking at in the morning service. It's a helpful tool. I encourage you to look at it. But especially in this series of Jeremiah, Look at it and look at the section of text that we're going to be looking at and read through it yourself. That way, as we're, because uh, I can't go through the entire thing. I'm not going to cover every verse this morning. But you know, if you've read it ahead of time, kind of what it's about and what it's saying. And you can kind of take what I say or what uh, whoever's preaching says and put it in the broader context of what you've read. So I would encourage you as we go through this book of Jeremiah, to, to do the, you know, uh, not hard work, of just reading the text ahead of time. Even on Saturday evening, as you're perhaps uh, heading to bed, uh, open your Bible and read through the text. This text. So this morning, uh, our text is chapters two through six. But I'm going to read just three sections of it. Uh, three sections. So first, look with me at chapter two, Verses 1 through 13. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love, 
as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in the land of drought and deep darkness, and a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. And one after things that do not profit. Therefore, I shall contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see. Or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now flip over to chapter 3. We'll start reading at verse 11. Chapter 3, we'll start reading at verse 11. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. And together, they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for heritage. 
I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful to all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly, and the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let us dishonor and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you shall return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver. And if you swear as the Lord lives in truth in justice and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord's. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And finally, flip over to chapter 5, verse 14. Look, at, look through verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Your fortified cities in which you trust, they shall beat down with the sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask for your help this morning as we spend a few moments meditating upon your word. Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? And Father, would you pour out your spirit upon us? Would you take your word and plant it deep within us? Would you use it to conform us more into the image of our Savior? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So uh, we're going to look uh, four points this morning. We're going to look at Israel's past zeal. Israel's past zeal. Second, we're going to look at Israel's present sin. Third, Israel's future judgment. And fourth, Israel's final 
uh, restoration, Israel's final restoration. So past, present, future, and final. Now, that's not a textual outline. That doesn't outline for us the text. Again, with something this big, we can't really go through it. And, and Jeremiah jumps all over. He's, remember, he's a prophet of the Lord. He's receiving words from God directly, and he's proclaiming them to whoever God tells him to go to. So at one time, he's got to go to this group of people and say this, which the Lord tells him. And another time, he goes to a different group of people and says this. And so uh, he's kind of uh, popcorning uh, messages to different groups of people to whomever God tells him to go to. So this is not a textual outline. And in fact, uh, the bulk of the text is spent in the uh, current present sin and future judgment and it kind of actually goes back and forth a lot of times. As If you read through it, and I would encourage you to do this today, you'll see he kind of just on one hand talks about their sin, and next hand talks about their judgment, and then goes back to their sin, and then goes back to their judgment. And, and much of it is spent kind of going back and forth. But, but we do want to look at all four of those things because they're all four essential elements to what we see this morning. So first, we want to think about Israel's past zeal. And we read uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and that's basically it. That's the whole kind of chunk of where God actually talks about Israel's past and how at one time in their history, they were devoted to the Lord. Look again at chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, and the land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. This is setting up Jeremiah's prophecy. Remember chapter 1, which we looked at last week, is, is God's commissioning of Jeremiah to serve him as a prophet. And the beginning words of Jeremiah's prophecy, the first things that God tells him to say is, I remember your devotion." As a youth. That is God saying, when I first birthed you as a nation, I, I brought you out of Egypt. And, and you remember what it was like? You, you followed me in the wilderness. I, I led you around and you, and you followed me. You were devoted wholly to me. Your love as a bride. It's an important point. Jeremiah God, through Jeremiah, says there was a time when you were a beautiful young bride. The image of a wedding or young love is one that Jeremiah will come back to again and again and again. And uh, not only young love, but then kind of unrequited love on, on, uh, their, on God's part. But uh, Israel was devoted as a young bride. She was holy to the Lord, he says. She was pure. She followed after him. She was set apart. If you read the Old Testament, you see God again and again and again say, it wasn't for anything that you'd done that I chose you and I set my love on you. And you were my beautiful young bride. And I loved you. And you loved me. And you committed yourself to me. You covenanted with me. And it was, it was blissful and it was great as young love should be. Notice also, just as a side point, God also says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits 
of his harvest. This is going to be a theme we'll come back to again and again. That Israel wasn't the only love that God said he would have, that there would be more, but Israel was the first one. Israel was the first nation that God called and said, I'm going to call you to myself, and I'm going to shed my love on you. Now, perhaps as we look at that, you're saying, well, that, that doesn't seem to be what I read in the Torah, does it? I mean, if you go back and look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you don't get the picture of a nation that is wholly devoted to the Lord, do you? They sin, they rebel. I mean, multiple times God has to judge thousands of them. Uh, while Moses, three months after they, uh, God brings them out of Egypt, Moses is uh, on the mountain and they make a golden calf. Right? It doesn't take long for Israel to sin against the Lord. And it happens again and again and again and again. And multiple times Moses has to, to plead before the Lord, don't, don't judge them, don't wipe them out. So, so how do we think through that? God says here in Jeremiah, you were my beautiful young bride and you were devoted to me. But the narrative we get in the Torah is, is a bit different. How do, we, how do we make sense of that? Well, what you see if you read through Deuteronomy and Numbers is, is that when, when Israel would sin, they would turn back to the Lord. And oftentimes, you see this kind of repeated phrase, kind of as if they're standing there making an oath. Everything you say, we will do, O Lord. And they sin, and God judges, and they come back, and they return. And Moses and, 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 and the, the, the priests would, would lead the nation in repentance, and Israel would repent to the Lord. As they stand on, on the, the, ready to go into the promised land, they say, everything you do, or everything you say, we will do. As, as they conquer the land, and you remember Joshua's famous line, choose you this day whom you will serve. They choose God. They choose Yahweh to serve. And they said, yes, we will be his people, and he will be our God. So even in the midst of Israel's kind of sinful rebellion as a young bride, they come back and they return to him. But here in Jeremiah, what we see is that Israel no longer does that. She no longer comes and returns to the Lord and says, yeah, Lord, we've sinned, we've, we've messed up, and we deserve your judgment, but, but we, we want to return to you. No longer do they do that. They return only in pretense. That is, their repentance as a people, when they sin and they, they go astray, their repentance is outward only. There's no inward heart change anymore as a people. They, they, they can do some of the things. Maybe they'll go to temple and, and make a sacrifice every year on the Day of Atonement. But it's, it's not from the heart. God says your, your repentance is only an outward pretense, not in heart. You're only going through the motions. Remember, this is, uh, he talks about this being a young love, and, and he says Israel now as a nation has uh, spread their love all over, which we'll look at in a minute. But there's, a, I think, a lesson here for young couples, old, older couples as well, but I think particularly long, young couples. Thinking through young love, that's, that's what he's talking about, what God says, yeah, I remember when you were a young love. 
Often marital breakups and breakdowns begin with love becoming only an outward pretense. I'm married, so I got to go through the motions. Without a heart, inner affection for your wife or your husband. That's often how marriages begin to break up. It's important to think through that and understand that. When you just find yourself only going through the motions with your spouse, you need to examine your heart and see why your heart's not there. You need to talk to your spouse. So kids, in your bulletin, first question is, does the feeling of love always last? Does the feeling of love always last? Well, the answer, of course, is no. Feeling of love doesn't always last. For Israel as a nation, their affection towards God, that disappeared pretty quickly. When you're married, you know that the feeling isn't always there. Um, you wake up, man, my, my husband or wife did this yesterday, and I'm not super happy with them. And that feeling maybe isn't there. But is that why marriages stay together? Because you always have a feeling? No. And that's not why Israel should have remained devoted to the Lord. What is it that, that is it? It's a commitment to the covenant. That God, if you, if you read through the Old Testament, God continually, I covenanted with you. I promised with you. I made this commitment. I am faithful to that which I've promised you. A marriage is based on the covenant and commitment that you made to the other person. Now, the feelings can, by God's grace, can last forever. And that would be amazing. But the feeling doesn't always last. But marriage love is based primarily on the covenant. Oftentimes, covenants come with signs, don't they? We see that uh, when you're, you get married, you, you have a sign of the covenant that you make with the other person. It's, uh, if you listen to Steve do a wedding, he'll talk about that. that. This is the sign of that commitment that you made to the other person. And, and as you go around and as you see your ring or as you play with it or whatever it is that you do, you're reminded continually of the promises that you made to the other person. And in a wedding ceremony, you make promises to the other person. Every covenant has a good sign. And Israel, the covenant that God made with Israel and that Israel made with God also had an outward sign. Circumcision. Cut the foreskin. And that's a reminder continually of the promise and the commitment that the nation of Israel made with God. We have signs of the covenant that we make with the Lord. We are baptized. A New Testament sign of our covenant with God is baptism, that we have died with Christ and been raised with Christ. These are, these are exterior signs of inward realities, of, of things that are true inwardly or invisibly. Israel used to be a young bride devoted to the Lord, but she no longer is. So, what is happening now? What's her current situation? What's her present sin? We'll look again. The key verse to think through this is chapter 2, verse 13, which we read. Look again. For my people have committed two 
evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns which hold no water. This is a beautiful image of a contrast that God makes. It's a bit hard for us to think, think through what he's saying. Uh, when we want some water, we go you know, to probably about four rooms in our house and just you know, turn a little switch or you know, turn something, and we get nice, fresh. We have a fountain literally coming out of a spigot. Not so uh, before indoor plumbing. If you wanted water, especially uh, in, you know, think of the ancient Near East, where Israel is located in their context, well, if you were lucky enough to live by a spring, well, man, you had a continual supply of nice, fresh, clean water. But if you didn't, well, then you'd, then you'd have to make a cistern. You'd literally have to dig a hole in the dirt or a rock that can hopefully catch the rainwater, and it kind of it gets to sit in there and sit in there. And then whenever you need some water, you go to your cistern and you pull out some water. Jesus, or God here is saying, look, you've been presented with two options. And, and what, what I gave to you and what I called you to is, is to be devoted to me, the fountain of living water. That is, I am the most precious beautiful, wonderful water that you could ever think of, and I never dry up. I'm living water. I give you everything you need. I'm this beautiful fountain, and I have all you could ever need. And yet, you've forsaken that, God says. You've you've given that up. Remember what he said, you went after worthless things and became worthless. They forsook the God who is the fountain of living water. And what is it they've done? Well, they've decided to, of their own accord, dig their own cisterns where the water gets muddy, moldy, bacteria-filled, dirty. The The image is stark contrast. You have this beautiful supply of fresh water, and you forsook that and instead decided to go out and do your own thing and dig your own wells and your own cisterns that store water. But guess what? They're broken cisterns. They don't even store water. They don't, they don't even accomplish for you the thing that they want you to that you want them to accomplish. They're broken. And all that because you gave up on me. That which is pure and great. This is, this is the context that he says, and this is, this is what he says. There is there two main evils that Israel has done against the Lord. This is their sin. They've given up reliance on the best thing imaginable and instead relied on their own self and their own self-sufficiency. This is the main paradigm for sin. All sin, from the beginning of sin in Adam and Eve, what you see in Genesis 3, this is the same thing that you see. This is what the devil tempts Eve with. You can, did God really say? And Eve forsook the fountain of living water, forsook the word of the Lord. And what did she made a judgment based on her own intuition. She built her own cistern. It's, this, it's how sin always works. We forsake God, the fountain, and we try to do it on our own. We dig our own cisterns. 
That's the main paradigm. So, so kids, what are the main sins in all of us? We categorize sin. What are the two main sins in all of us? Forsaking God and trusting ourselves. This is how sin works. This is what it is at its root. We forsake God and we trust ourselves. And all, every other sin flows downstream from that. There's a whole bunch of other sin that God brings up here. We're going to, talk, we're going to go through them in a second. There's a whole bunch of them. But every single one flows downstream from those two things. You've forsaken me and you've dug your own cisterns. That's what each of us wrestle with. So what are those other sins that God brings up? Well, in chapter 2, verses 18, he condemns them for, be, for being disloyal by seeking, you don't have to turn to these, by seeking help from Egypt and Assyria. That's an important one. God said, nope, trust in me only. Don't go to the other nations for help. I will help you. Famously, Hezekiah, trust the Lord and God delivers. But now, nah, not so much. But God said, don't do that. And they did it anyway. They were disloyal to God. They Chapter 2, verse 27, they worshipped idols and foreign gods. He said, you've bowed yourself to trees and to rocks, right? They, they made idols for themselves, and they worshipped them. Chapter 2, verse 34, they forsook the poor and the helpless. They forsook the poor and the helpless. That is, there were needy people in, uh, amongst, the, amongst them, and they didn't care for them. In fact, they abused them. Chapter 3, verse 10, they... They showed false repentance, kind of what we talked about earlier. Their, their repentance was merely outward, which is a lie. They're lying to God by showing false repentance. Chapter 4, verse 30, they, this is an interesting one. They make themselves attractive to win over or to win favor with their foreign nations. That is, God says, look, you beautified yourself. You dressed yourself up. You put on your makeup, and you made yourself look really nice in order to win the favor of the nations around you. God condemns them for that. Chapter 5, verse 2, they swear falsely. That is, they use God's name for their own convenience rather than using it how it should be used. They swear falsely in the name of God. Chapter 5, verse 12, they play upon God's patience. They test God. They put the Lord their God to the test by saying, yeah, he's not going to do anything. We recognize what we're doing is probably not good, but he's not going to do anything. He's just sitting up there. He's not going to. That is tempting God. And Israel did it. And he condemns them for it. Chapter 5, verses 26 through 31. Their leaders are treacherous. Their leaders are treacherous. And of course, the people just sit and let it happen. People don't actually say something. They let their leaders take advantage and abuse the people. Chapter 6, verse 13, they are greedy for unjust gain. Chapter 6, verse 14, their leaders lie and give false hope. Their priests and their prophets, especially their prophets, are saying, yeah, God says it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. They're lying to the people. And they give false hope. And then, Finally, in chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, they would not listen to the word of the Lord. There's a plethora 
of sins in here that Israel is guilty of. And again, they all flow downstream from those two main sins, that they forsook God and they build cisterns for themselves. They hew them out, broken cisterns. And as I was, But as I was reading this, I thought, oh, this, is, this is eerily similar to our own temptation and our own sin, isn't it? This is, reminds me a lot of my heart sometimes. Maybe I'm disloyal to God by seeking, seeking truth elsewhere. They, they, they sought help from Israel and Assyria, and God said, no, 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 I, I'm, the, I'm the voice of the one. I'm the one that you need. Don't go to them. It's easy for us to, to listen to the voice of that which isn't God and which isn't truth. We, we seek our understanding of the world around us or the society in which we live based on any number of secular theories rather than the word of God. It's an easy one for us to think through. We worship idols, maybe not ones made of stone or tree, but we often put any number of things before the worship of the Lord our God. If you want to help thinking through what our personal idols are, Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods is a fantastic little resource to think through that. What, what are the things in my life that I have idolized and worshipped more than the Lord our God? They made themselves attractive to win the favor of the nations. That's an interesting one. Perhaps, personally, what are the things that I do to, to try to make myself seem good, try to make myself seem better than I am, maybe try to win the favor of, of the culture around me, it's easy for churches to do that, isn't it? To try to dress ourselves up or try to, to do things that might be a little hip or might attract a younger crowd because we want them here and we want to get them through the door. So we've got to make ourselves seem attractive. We've got to have the smoke machine and the, the lights and, and all sorts of things because that's what brings people through the doors. That's what the world wants to see in a church. We try to win the favor of the culture around us rather than obeying the Lord our God. This is eerily similar to our own hearts, and it all stems from our own unbelief and pride that we forsake the fountain of living water and hew out cisterns for ourselves. We spend our lives being satisfied with things that don't profit. To borrow C.S. Lewis's image, too busy playing in the mud rather than coming to the feast that is God and Jesus Christ. That's Israel's present sin. While in light of that, God says there is a future judgment coming. There is a future judgment coming. We read just one piece of that. God says he's going to bring a foreign nation to judge them. He says they're going to go and dwell in that land. They're going to, the entire land is going to be sacked. And the people are going to be carried off. Israel is going to bring, or God's going to bring the nations of Assyria and Babylon to judge his people. And there's an interesting irony here that God uses the very thing that they wanted to judge them. They wanted to be, to have favor with the nations around them. They wanted those people, Babylon and Egypt and Assyria, to, to think well of them and to think all oh, they're 
those Israelites, they're something special. They, they wanted the favor of the foreign nations. They, they w- then went to them and tried to kind of make peace with them when God told them not to. And it's irony that God then says, I'm going to use those very nations to judge you. Israel whored after the favor of the other nations. There's some strong language in here about how Israel did that and some crazy images of a donkey running about in the wind, what Israel was doing with the other nations. They whored themselves after for the favor of the other nations. And it's then those other nations that bring about their destruction. This is how God judges. This is what God does. If you read Romans chapter 1, what is, and we say this a number of times, how is it that God judges humanity? He often gives them up to the things that they want. He gives them over. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. God gives us over to the things that we want, to our own desires. Kids, God's, God often uses our own desires to judge us. God often uses our own desires to judge us. The church in the West is certainly experiencing this. We've sought the favor of a culture which has now turned against us. They want to destroy us. So we've got to carefully examine our own desires and examine the priority of our own desires. Having desires isn't bad, right? Wanting, wanting a nice thing, wanting a nice car, isn't, those aren't bad things at all. But if we're not careful and they become idols, God often then uses those very things that we desire above him and turns them upon ourselves turns them on our own heads. So we've got to think about our own desires. This happens often when we perhaps idolize social progress. It's social progress that then is our own judgment. This is happening right now uh, with the feminists and the transgender movement. An interesting irony. The feminists tried so hard to kind of go against the biblical idea of manhood and womanhood. And now they're being pushed out by the transgender movement. Social progress is one way that this works. God uses it to judge our culture. Or perhaps idolizing individual freedom or idolizing government security. Something that we can do. And God often turns those things back upon our head. If we we want the government to take care of us, He uses those things to judge us as a nation. Ask Soviet Russia how that went. Or perhaps we idolize individual freedoms. No, stop telling me what to do. I'm myself. I have individual autonomy. You can't tell me ever what to do. And there are nations that have no government. God is using that desire to judge them. Perhaps personal wealth. Perhaps that's the idol of our hearts. I want to get rich. I want to have money. I want to have things. I want to have a bigger house. I want to be comfortable, right? I want, I want that. And when we put that over our love and devotion to the Lord, he'll often take that and use it as a means of, our, of his judgment upon us. We, we become misers. We lose friendships, right? And we die old and unhappy 
because we've idolized wealth. You see, God takes our desires and turns them upon ourselves when we idolize them above him. So for God's children, well, what's he say? Repent, return. Judgment isn't a full end for his children, but he uses it to bring them to repentance. That's famously God says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, right? If if you hear the voice of the Lord pronouncing judgment, pronouncing discipline, well, he disciplines us because he loves us and he wants us to return. Keep your finger in Jeremiah and turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. This is what God says in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 3 to 11, God says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. So we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. For God's children, his judgment is not final. His chastisement, though painful, the writer of the Hebrews says, it brings about our good. Brings about our sanctification. Discipline is the necessary step between sin and restoration. It's the final point that that God makes to his people. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to discipline you, and it's going to hurt. You're going to dwell amongst these people who you don't know and don't speak their language, and they're going to hate you. They're going to try to kill you if you read the book of Esther. And yet, it's not the end. God says, no, I, I will restore you. I will bring you back, and that's our final point this morning, Israel's final restoration. And that was the second passage that we read this morning, mainly in chapter 311, verses uh, through chapter 4. And notice, who is the primary actor in that restoration? Look again with me at verse 12 of chapter 3. I will not look on you in anger. For I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will take you, one from a city, and two from a family, and will bring you to the Lord. Verse 15. I will give you shepherds 
after my own heart. Who will feed you? Verse 22, I will heal your faithlessness. God promises to this nation that in the midst of their judgment, he is faithful and he will bring them back. He will restore to them that which he promised them. God is the primary actor in his restoration of his people. So what's Israel's responsibility? Do they need to do something in order to experience this future restoration? Well, look what he says. Return to me. Return, faithless Israel. Return. Acknowledge your guilt. And then in chapter 4 that we read, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Again, your, your repentance cannot be outward only. There has to be an inward heart reality to the repentance that Israel is. So that's what God says. That's, I'm going to do all this for you. What's your responsibility? Just return to me and circumcise and devote yourself once again to me. Interestingly, God already promised he would do these things for Israel. Lastly, look over at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. In chapter 29, he, he tells them that they're not going to be able to obey. They don't have it in them to obey the covenant and to follow the law and to do everything they need to. And that he's going to scatter them among the nations. He prophesied, what he's telling them is going to happen in, Jer- in Jeremiah. He already told them in Deuteronomy that this was going to happen, that you're going to disobey, and I'm going to judge you by scattering you in the nations. Right? So, so what, the, everything that we're seeing in Jeremiah is already built upon the foundation of what God has already promised them and told them in Deuteronomy. And then what's he say in Deuteronomy chapter 30? And when all these things have come upon you, when you disobeyed and I judged you and sent you out to the nations, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, when you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore you your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And watch this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And Jeremiah, what's, what's the intended response? Oh, just, just repent and devote yourself once again to me. And yet, God has already promised that he would do this for them. I will circumcise your hearts. Brothers and sisters, the nation didn't, doesn't, didn't even have the capacity to obey and to repent. 
and to follow the Lord and to circumcise their own hearts. And they don't, because dead people never do. It's the same with us. The scriptures are clear. Repentance and faith is not something that we even have within ourselves to muster up. A number of years ago, Phil preached on Ephesians chapter 2. A fantastic sermon. Go back and listen to it. One of the things that he, he reminded us, one of the things that Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, is that we are dead in sin. Outside of Christ, we are dead. And that's the state of Israel in this passage, in Jeremiah. They are dead. They don't even have it within themselves to, to repent and to devote themselves once again to the Lord. And God says, I will do it. I will make you love me. I will circumcise your hearts. Brothers and sisters, salvation is never in and of ourselves. We can't do it. We don't have it within us. And so God always provides for us that which he requires of us. God always provides for us that which he requires of us. Dead people can't make themselves alive. So what is, how does he restore them? How is he going to bring them back? Well, look again at verse 15 of chapter 3. I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. The entire restoration that we see in the book of Jeremiah and we're going to look at it way more in depth when we hit chapter 30. It's all tied to the Messiah, to the good shepherd. It's tied to Christ. It is Christ who feeds his people. He is the good shepherd. He feeds us with knowledge and understanding. Notice the other thing in here that, that God said he would do. He says, well, look, you're not even going to need the Ark of the Covenant anymore because Jerusalem itself is going to be, I'm going to dwell amongst you. I'm going to dwell amongst you. And yet, we're reminded, when we think of that, of what is the name of Christ that he's given? Emmanuel. God with us. Christ dwelling with his people is how God brings about salvation and restoration to them. This is Christ. Everything here that, that, that God is reminding them, I'm going to do all this for you, and it's all tied to Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. He keeps his promises in Christ. So kids, even in the midst of judgment, God's promises still last. His promises still last. And that promise runs in and through Jesus Christ. He feeds us with knowledge, his word. But what did Steve read for us earlier? He doesn't just feed us with his word. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He laid down his life for us. That's what makes him the good and perfect shepherd. When we see him, salvation is found only in him. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for your word. And we thank you for the faithful preaching of your gospel and the truth of your word to our church. Father, your word is a sharp sword that cuts right to our heart. And even as we look at these words from the prophet Jeremiah from thousands of years ago today, these sins of the nation of Israel, they, they embarrass us today, Lord, because we have these same sins in our own heart. We often turn from the wise words and the truth of your gospel, the living water that gives us life and breath, and that we know is the only thing that sustains us in life, Father, and we turn to every other thing in our life that we desire or that we find hope in. We don't trust you, Father. We trust in ourselves. Father, give us a desire for your true and living water today. Father, continue to sanctify and change our hearts and turn us away from the things of this world and the wisdom of this age that we find some hope in, knowing that it only leads to destruction and turns us away from God. Father, don't allow our hearts to be hardened and not obeying you. Do not give us up, Father. We, we beg you to not give us up to our sinful desires. Father, we pray that we would be changed in our hearts to have a desire to be, have godly desires, Father, of justice and mercy. Father, we pray for your mercy on us, that even though we deserve death and destruction, Father, we pray that you would withhold your judgment from us. Father, give us hearts of repentance that trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us faith, faith that turns us from the wisdom of this world, dim the wisdom of the world in our eyes, and allow us to see it is foolishness. Any worldview that doesn't trust in Christ Jesus to redeem us from our sinfulness, Father, is foolishness. Father, we believe in your promises that if we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you will remove our sins from your sight, Father. And you will reconcile and restore us to a right relationship with the only true and living God. Father, we pray all these things for our church here this morning. Father, we pray this morning also for those among us that are unbelievers, who are here maybe hearing the gospel for the first time or maybe the hundredth time, but have not turned from their sinful desire and turned to trust in you for their Savior and, and their salvation. Father, we pray for them this morning that this sermon, this regular preaching of the word of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Father, by your Holy Spirit, would be soften their hearts and be effective on their hearts to change them. Give them this true and living water this morning for the first time that they might know your Son, Jesus Christ, and know a right relationship with you. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>